Man, I am full. I don't know about the rest of you, but just like singing and seeing what God is doing, my heart is just bursting. And I said, okay, so I got to like keep that. The standard of the bar has been set very high. I feel like I got to keep, keep this going. And so, man, worship team, thank you so much, Clayton and Tiffany and the, and the team. It was such a great environment to preach out of as we continue in this Dear Church series. And in this series, we've been looking at the different letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And and Revelation is one of those books that it's easy for us to keep at arm's length. It's one of those books, sort of this weird book with some weird imagery at the end of the Bible. And so we can kind of look at it very clinically, kind of, oh, that's kind of interesting. But, But when we talk about history, so as you hear Pastor Dave and I talk about context and background and historical, you know, the context of what's happening is to answer a question. And the question is, what did this mean? When this letter was read to the original congregations, what did it mean to that that original group of hearers, those original hearers? And I say hearers because what would happen is um, John would write down this letter dictated from Jesus on a scroll, and then he would, it would be brought to a congregation, and they would gather together, and he would read it aloud, because most of the congregation at that point was probably illiterate. They couldn't read, and they didn't have access to, to, to reading and writing anyway. And so you'd have the, the leader of the church, often called the angel in the book of Revelation, would read this letter aloud. So it's not like there's like a magical property. At the beginning of Revelation, it says, blessed are those who read aloud these words or hear these words being read aloud. It's not because it's magical when it's read aloud. It's that that's how they heard the message. It was read aloud to them. And so we've got to get back into their shoes to find out what did they hear? What was their context like? What was their environment? So that we don't keep this message at arm's length. We could do a very interesting history lesson for you know, 20 or 30 minutes and, and get some background and go, oh, that's kind of interesting, or oh, that's kind of neat. But we'd miss the word for us. You hear Clayton pray about that. God, reveal your word for us today. And we do believe that this letter to the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2 is for you and for me today. And so I want to encourage you as we go through, I only have four verses to talk about. I only have four verses, but there's a lot in those four verses. So I really want to encourage you, have your Bible laying out so you can refer back to it. If you've got the the church uh, community covenant app, open that up. Um, If you've got a Bible app, but do have that in front of you. You might be a person that likes to take down notes. This is going to be a message for you today. So what did they hear? And why these churches? So we're going to put a map up on the screen. We're going to see on the map, this is... Um, western Turkey, the western coast of Turkey, and you see the seven churches there. And there's been a lot of speculation in the course of church history, like why are these church, why are these churches been chosen? Is it, are these churches kind of representative of types of churches? Are they representatives of, of kind of different seasons of the church throughout church history? But if you look at the map and those red dots, you see that Ephesus is followed on the road by Smyrna, which is followed on the road by Pergamum, and so on and so on. Look at the order in your Bible. Oh, goodness, the church in Ephesus to the church in Smyrna. It's just following the road. 
This was a Roman rod. One of the innovations of the Roman Empire that really brought things forward was the development of modern paved roads. And it allowed for messages to get out quicker. It allowed for transportation to be easier. You think about in America, what happened after World War II when we got the interstate system and how that completely changed how we moved around the country. The same thing happened with the Roman roads. And it really allowed the gospel to get out and be distributed around the Roman Empire because they were roads. So if you look at kind of the letters here, you look, you look, look at the map, well, you see there's these cities, and, and Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum were the three most prominent because they're along the coast. And that means they can be a center for shipping and commerce and things like that. And so these, these cities are very prominent in that culture at that time. And so a message we brought from Patmos, you see in the bottom corner, John writes this down. It gets sent to Ephesus, which gets, and it gets sent to Smyrna. The thing that's awkward, though, is everybody gets to read everything. And these, these letters to the churches, they're kind of like report cards, which is great if you've got all A's. Having your report card read in front of everybody, that's, that's great. Hey, yeah, I'm awesome. Look at how awesome our church is. But if you're on academic probation with your church, if your church is struggling, if you got some D's and some F's and some C minuses in there, that could be a little bit, a little bit awkward. But the idea was this message was for the church. And we are part of the church this morning. And so the words that were given, you know, almost 2,000 years ago are also for us today. So I don't want to, I just want to continue to state that, that please don't look, look at this and go, oh, that was kind of an interesting message. And I learned something about history. That's not the point. This is a very real message being delivered to very real people by a very real God. The God that we sang about, the God that we worship, this God was also working in the lives of these original communities. And so we begin this letter in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, and it says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, These are the words of him who was first and the last, who died and came to life again. That's talking about Jesus. In my Bible, I have one of those red-letter Bibles. All of the letters to the original churches of Revelation are written in red because these are the very words of Jesus being spoken. And the, the way he describes himself is very intentional. He says, I'm the first and the last, or the alpha and the omega, if, you, if you're reading this in Greek, who died and came to life again. He's talking about authority. That Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And this is important because the Caesars at the time were saying the very same thing. And we've got a picture of the Caesar who was reigning at the time of this letter. That's Emperor Domitian. Emperor Domitian, he loved being worshipped. It was the patriotic act of the people to worship Domitian. He said, I am the King of kings. I am the Lord of lords. My reign will never end. It actually did. It ended historically just like every earthly ruler's has a time where their rule is a beginning and an end. But he, the, the word on the streets was the Roman Empire will live forever. And if you just give yourself and be a good patriotic Roman and you give yourself to the empire, they'll keep you safe and they'll keep you healthy and they'll, keep every, they'll, they'll take care of all of your needs. So worship the king. Worship King Domitian. And he was a jealous kind of guy. So when you had Christians, they were saying, we worship the king. 
the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The actual one. This one's fake, by the way, which is why when the gospel writers are writing their gospels decades after Jesus lived on the earth, their language is very intentional. They're trying to, they're making a political statement. When Dan Morrison comes on the 28th, he's talking about this book is a political protest. It's protesting that. It's protesting a way of the world that says, if you can just give your life to this, to this way of the world, then everything will be all right. And the gospel writers and the writers of the New Testament are saying, no, that's false hope. That's an idol. That's a false king. Give your life to the true king, to the king of kings. And so it's on repeat, this, this, this language of the first and the last, the beginning of the end, the king of kings is repeated over and over and over and over and over again in Revelation because he wants them to know that it's worth it. This is the question of Revelation. Is it worth it to follow Jesus? Because at this point, it makes your life very difficult. If you want to go through life and kind of just get by and have a little extra change in your pocket and have a nice spread of food on your table and have your needs taken care of, then by all means, be a good patriotic Roman. But if you want to have real life, you follow Jesus. And so I'm sure it was a question for those early Christians to say, is it really worth it? to follow this Jesus and not have food on my table? Is it really worth it to follow Jesus and be rejected by my family? Is it really worth it to follow Jesus and not feel like anybody wants me around? Is it worth it to follow Jesus and feel like I'm losing everything that everybody says matters? Which is why he says in the next verse, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who are, that say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The God that we worship that says it's worth it also joins us in the pain. We have a God that doesn't just stay off into heaven, that doesn't just look down from above and say, oh, that's interesting, or that, that's kind of neat. No, our God gets his hands dirty. Our God is a God who came as a man and died on the cross and conquered death. That's the Jesus we were singing about a few minutes ago. So our God is aware. He's aware of us, and he is aware of your situation today. So I don't know your story. I don't know what battles you're fighting today. I don't know what challenges you face. I don't know what uncertainties are before you. I don't know if you're wondering, God, what is next? I want to say if you're in that place of brokenness right now, that Jesus is aware and he meets you in the middle of that pain. He meets you there. He doesn't just stand back and go, oh, wow, that's interesting. Tom's having a bad day. No, Jesus is right there in the middle of your situation. We don't just sing the words of worship songs because, man, they're really neat and they make us feel good. They're the truth. Can anybody say amen? Does anybody agree with that? I, I, I think I agree. Like, is this truth or not? This is the truth that we hold on to. I get fired up, guys. This is the Bible, and I get fired up, so I'm just going to keep. That's why I have to walk around, because I just I can't stay in one place. Because it's so. This is God's word, and we can't look at it as this clinical document. This is the word for us. 
They're poor because they're rejected because, man, if you are a fisherman, but you don't give homage to the gods of the sea, no one will buy your fish. If you're an artisan and, you make, and you're a craftsperson, a craftsman, and you're making things, but you don't give homage to the God of craftsmanship, then no one's going to buy your stuff. So how are you going to put food on the table? How are you going to feed your family? And that was a big question for them. Only other people who followed Jesus. They were rejected. There was literally a cost, but Jesus said, yeah, you are rich. Don't put your faith in things that are gonna that are gonna rust and things that are gonna fade away. Put your put your trust in things that matter. And then we get to this part of this verse that is troubling. Jesus calls the synagogue a synagogue of Satan. So what is it? What are we talking about? What is a synagogue of Satan? Before I get into any of the historical piece, I need to say this first. There has been a lot of harm that has been done with the misuse of this verse. There's been a lot of anti-Semitic work that has been done in the last 2,000 years as utilizing this verse incorrectly. This is not an anti-Jewish passage. This does not mean that all Jews are satanic. It does not mean that all Jewish people are the devil. So please, please, Hear me, this is not what this is about. This is tragedy. The fact that God's chosen people, the people that were chosen all the way back in Genesis 12, and God comes to Abram and says, you are going to be my people, and I will be your God, and you will bless all the people of the earth, that those people, to a great extent, rejected their Messiah. The Messiah they've been waiting for for centuries. When he finally comes, instead of rejoicing, they crucify him. That's tragedy. And if your heart doesn't just absolutely break from the fact that your brothers and sisters who are Jewish today, that there are some who are still looking for the Messiah, your heart should just shatter. We should be praying for our Jewish brothers and sisters that they will finally acknowledge that the Messiah has come and reigns as king today. This is heartbreaking. This is absolutely heartbreaking. Why are they the synagogue of Satan? Well, see, no context. Whenever the Roman Empire would conquer a nation, they would allow that nation to still practice their native religion. That was part of how the Pax Romana was upheld, the Roman peace. That's how they kind of kept, you know, they said, well, Religion's pretty important to people, and actually in the first century, everybody practiced some kind of a religion. And so they said, we'll let the Hebrews continue to practice their Hebrew faith, their monotheistic faith. But see, it was, it was, it was a challenge because in most cases, when the Romans were, were conquering other Greco, Greco-Roman nations, well, they already worshipped a bunch of gods, so who, what, what's the matter about adding a couple more? They didn't really care. But see... The Jewish people, just like us, they follow the Ten Commandments. And what's the first of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. So there's a problem when there's a guy like Nero or Domitian or Tiberius saying, I'm God, worship me. That doesn't work for the Jews. And there's a lot of struggle in the first century and actually 
before the first century, there's a lot of struggle for the Romans to try to figure out how do we allow the, you know, not have these uprisings, these these Jewish uprisings, this Jewish revolution, but still keep the peace. And you see that in the background of when Jesus was on trial, right? Because it's the, it's the synagogue, it's the Sanhedrin that, that, that comes before Pilate and says, arrest this man, crucify this man. And if you read the scriptures, Pilate says, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want a revolt. I don't want an uprising. And so there's an agreement that takes place between the Roman Empire and the Jewish community. And they say, okay, we won't make you go worship the emperor, but you've got to pay taxes. You've got to pay a tax. We'll exempt you from it. You don't have to come worship. We think you're a little unpatriotic. We think you're not very good Romans, but we get it. You're allowed to just go and worship at your temple. Just pay us a little bit on the side, and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of look the other way. But there are all of these uprisings that were happening. And the, and the, and the early Christians, they don't think they're starting a new religion, by the way. Jesus didn't say, I have come to establish a new religion. No, Jesus is saying, this is what it means to be faithful to all of this in the Old Testament. That I am the fulfillment of all of this. So follow me. So Peter and James and John and Paul and all of those folks are just thinking, we're just being faithful Hebrews. And then we're going to invite the Gentiles to be a part. But they didn't think they're creating a new religion. But the Jews sure didn't like it. Because now you got all these people, all these former Jews who are worshiping this guy named Jesus. And again, they're Ten Commandment Jews who think you should have no other God before me, but now you're worshiping this man, Jesus of Nazareth, as a God. Well, we can't allow that. They're heretics. And so they try to distance themselves from the from their Jewish cousins who are following Jesus. And in the midst of all of this, there's turmoil. There are a few different operations that happen. Um, Emperor Claudius, he actually kicks all the Jews out of Rome in in 51 because of some of the unrest. You can see that in Acts 18, chapter 2, or Acts chapter 18, verse 2, if you want to go and check that out later on. But there becomes a time where they go, we need to separate ourselves from these Christians because hey, if we go and tell the Romans that these aren't really Jews anymore, then they gotta go worship the, they got to go worship the emperor. And that's going to make their lives really difficult. So what you had was the, the, the leaders of the synagogues would go to the Roman officials and say, hey, by the way, they're not like us. Because up to this point, from a Roman perspective, this is just a denomination of Judaism. Because it really is in a lot of ways. It's an offshoot of the roots of our faith is, the, is, is, is in the Old Testament. It's a Jewish faith. But you had Jewish leadership that were not okay calling their heretical brothers and sisters part of them and said, hey, they're they're not one of us. You need to make them go to the temple and worship the emperor. Well, obviously, that's going to be a problem for believers because we are also Ten Commandments people that should have no other gods before us. And so that that makes an issue. And so in their pursuit of them keeping their religion pure from these heretical Christians and keeping themselves safe from kind of Roman interference, they start to slander their Christ-following brothers and sisters. 
They start sharing rumors. They start sharing half-truths. And so here's some of the rumors that were spread about Christians in the first century. First of all, Christians are atheists. Did you know that? You're an atheist? Because in the first century, if, if you don't worship a God that you can see, then there's no God at all. If there's not a temple or a monument or a statue or a painting or something, if you can't see that God, that God can't be there. There's no invisible gods. So the Christians are a bunch of atheists. They don't go to temple. They don't come worship Domitian like everyone else. They're a bunch of atheists. That was a rumor that was spread, and, and, the, and the leadership of the Jewish community would, would, fuel, would, would, would add fuel to the fire. They'd say, yeah, that's, you, might be, you might be right. By the way, we worship an invisible God, but hey, they're different from us, so uh, have at it. Number two, did you know that Christians practice incest? They're all brothers and sisters, and they're getting married to each other. Isn't that incest? They left out the part that we're called the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not blood relatives, but hey, that doesn't matter if you're trying to slander somebody. It doesn't matter. Don't, let, don't, let, don't get confused by the facts. So they spread this rumor. They're, man, they're gross. They're atheists and they're gross. They're a bunch of incestual. They're marrying their brothers and their sisters. And oh, goodness. Let's get rid of this deviant community from, this, from our pure Roman Empire, which, by the way, was not pure at all. We'll get to that some other week. But um, there's a lot of stuff going on in the Roman Empire. But and nevertheless, they're atheists. They're incestuous. And did you know? Christians are cannibals because every week they eat flesh and blood when they meet. Communion, right? Body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ shed for you, you eat it. They're not actually eating flesh and blood, but that doesn't matter. If you're trying to slander somebody, if you're trying to drag somebody's name in the mud, if you're trying to get somebody cast out, you're trying to get somebody in trouble, you're trying to turn people away, then yeah. They're atheists, they're incestuous, they're cannibals. But get this out. This Roman Empire would be better off without the Christian infection. So let's just get rid of it. You might say, Tom, this is wacky, but this is what people believed. Which is why they were persecuted. They thought, we've got to get rid of this. This is twisted stuff. We've got to get rid of these people. Say, okay, so Tom, if this is word for us, then what's the word for us? The word for us is that the Jewish community that did this, they thought they were keeping themselves pure and holding to the truth of the scriptures that they had learned. And they were being good citizens. It's possible that when you're standing for the truth, you can actually be doing the devil's work. It's possible that when you are intending to stand for the truth that you're actually doing the devil's work. Well, how does this happen? It happened a lot in Jesus' time. Think about Jesus' arrest. He was arrested by the Sanhedrin, Jewish leadership. You think about Paul. You know, Paul was, was, was just about killed multiple times because he was teaching people a false religion. In the early church, over and over and over again, you saw in the first century, yes, the Romans were going to eventually be this empire that does all this damage, but initially it was their brothers and sisters that should have known better. 
So it's tragic, but it's tragic for us because we can do it too. Because sometimes when we're trying to stand for the truth, sometimes when we're trying to make a point, we can be pretty harsh. I don't know if you've ever been on this thing called Facebook or Twitter. Anybody ever aware of where those things exist, Facebook and Twitter? Somebody got accounts? Has anybody ever seen a toxic Facebook post or a toxic tweet? Nah, Twitter's, everybody loves each other on Twitter. They say a lot of really friendly things, and right? If you believe that, I got some other stuff I can tell you later on. No, there's so much toxicity, and I wish I could say, yeah, but Christians aren't a part of anything toxic. But is that true? How many times do you, have you meant to make, like, ah, oh, man, somebody sent me this meme or somebody sent me this email forward, and it's really funny. It's about this political person that I don't really like very much. And because I don't like them and they're actually doing some stuff I don't really agree with, man, it's, it's really funny. So I'm going to forward that. I, some of this stuff probably isn't true, but it's really funny. Some of the stuff might not be true, but it really gets my point across when I add some of this other stuff in there. But when we do that, we're just like the first century Jewish community. When we slander our brothers and sisters, that's us. And I'll tell you right now, I don't want to work for a community covenant church of Satan. I'm not interested. I'm going to resign. By the way, I was a little concerned for a service. I said, does anybody else want to, would anybody else leave if we we rebranded this community covenant church of Satan? There's only about five hands that went up. I was like, whoa. I don't want to work for the church of Satan. Does anybody want to go to the church of Satan? I hope not. You're in the wrong place if you do. Sometimes we get so caught up in being right that we do the devil's work. We do harm to one another. And Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. And think about it again. I don't say this to like for any, any animosity against the Jewish community. I think it's tragic. It is... I, to, I would say, if you want to respond, to, one way you can respond to this message, if you want to start in your prayer journal and your prayer, to start praying for the Jewish community to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, that would be a good thing. Because there are so many who are still waiting for the one. The one. They're still waiting. He's already come. He's, he's, he's here. But Jesus knows what's coming. And he knows how difficult it's going to get. And so he continues on in this, the end of the letter to the church in Smyrna. He says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you your life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Jesus knows that this church and these Christians in Smyrna are in for it. As Domitian takes his reign in the 80s and 90s and the end of the first century and into the second century, the heat is going to start getting turned up. Nero kind of starts it in the 50s and 60s. There's persecution, but it's mostly contained to the city of Rome. But starting with Domitian, it starts getting pretty bad. 
And if you're going to prison, you're probably going to lose your life. It's not, it's not like going in for a sentence of a few years or 20 years. It's no, it's a short period of time because Jesus is saying, just hold out. I know it's excruciating. I know it's difficult, but it's not forever. And if you can overcome, if you can hang on and be faithful, then you get the crown. And this is appropriate. This is an Olympic year. In a few weeks, we're going to see athletes compete, and they're going to have medals, gold, silver, and bronze. So when Olympic athletes competed in ancient Rome and ancient Greece, they got crowns. They got leaved crowns that they would wear if they won. And so stick with Jesus. If you can stick with Jesus, no matter what comes at you and are faithful, you get the crown. You reign victorious. I want to see a victory. That's not just words to a song. That's the truth. But Jesus has won the victory for you on the cross and has conquered death. And if we can follow him, if we give our lives to Jesus, then we also get to see the victory too. Instead of us taking all this in our own hands and we, we slander brothers and sisters and say, let, let God fight your battles for you. We get so much into taking these matters in our own hands and sometimes, well, I got to speak this out because somebody needs to hear this. Well, maybe just pray. If something needs to be done, let God deal with it. Let the Holy Spirit deal with it. Because the Holy Spirit transforms lives. I don't. I don't transform anybody's lives. It's the Holy Spirit working through his word that transforms lives. I'm just a messenger. But they know what's coming. So he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the one who is victorious or overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. You know, a lot of times in the church, we talk about eternity with Jesus. And that is our hope as Christians, eternity with Jesus. That's what we hold on to. That's what empowers us. But there's another eternity as well. There's eternity away from Jesus, without Jesus. And that is what Revelation calls a second death. It's real. And you don't want to be there. You want to be with Jesus, I hope. But those who follow Jesus, says they will not be hurt at all by the second death. Hell has no claim on you if you've given your life to Jesus. If you love Jesus and your desire is to follow him, hell has no claim on your life, no matter how much the enemy comes at you. By the way, didn't mention this earlier. Do you know what Satan's name, Satan's name actually means? Accuser. The word Satan means accuser. Satan is the great accuser. So the next time that you're struggling and you're in your shame and you feel like you have no value, you feel like you have no worth, that's the enemy. That's the spirit of Satan. That's not from the Lord. So often we, when we struggle with our, our brokenness, we say, man, I feel so guilty. Guilt is something that can change behavior. But shame, when you begin to feel like I'm powerless. I can't overcome. I'm done. I'm worthless. Count me out. 
That's not from the Lord. It's from the enemy. And we don't serve the enemy here. So as you walk from here today, three things I want you to remember. First, no matter what you're facing, God knows your struggles and meets you in your pain. You do not have to walk alone. God is very aware and meets you in your pain. Second, you can count yourself as one of God's people and still do the devil's work. So maybe something that you need to write somewhere or post somewhere is, God, help me understand. If there's something that I don't understand yet, God, teach me. And I pray that's the heart of all of us, that we would all continue to grow and learn because we don't know everything. And by the way, if you do think you know everything, you're in trouble. That's the, that's the first that's, that's the first red flag for me. If somebody walks up to me and says, Tom, I know everything. I go, okay, stay away from that guy. Because <laughs> uh, we don't. So can we be in that posture of saying, God, if there's something that I'm putting out there that I mean for good but is doing harm, would you let me know, God? Because I don't want to be serving Satan. I want to serve the Lord. And finally, it's worth it to stick with Jesus. It doesn't mean your life is going to be easy. It doesn't mean the Lord's going to give you a million dollars. I know there's some pastors that say, hey, if you want to be wealthy and healthy, read this book, do these seven things, follow, you know. That's not promised to us. But new life in real life, that's what's promised to us in Jesus. And it's so worth it. As we, go, as we go through, we're only going to get through Revelation 2 and 3 this summer, but I've been working through the book of Revelation with our young adults on Monday nights. And you see why it's worth it to stick with Jesus, and you see the thing that we have been told to pursue, this broken system. But we also see how that ends up as well in the book of Revelation. And it's not pretty. If you put your hope in trying to get gain more and trying to have a big spread on your table and, and trying to, you know, build up your, your wealth and all, that's your goal. Now, being wealthy is not bad in itself, but if your total goal is to just accumulate more for you and you and you and you, you miss it. Jesus says at the beginning, they're, they're rich. These are people who are just barely able to get by. They're rich because of what they have in Jesus. He's worth it. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what questions you have. I don't know what struggles you have right now, but I want to just tell you, for whoever needs to hear this, whether you're in the room or listening online, that it is worth it to follow Jesus. It is worth it to give your life to Jesus. You might feel like, hey, but I'm losing all this stuff, but I guarantee what you gain doesn't show up in a checkbook or a bank account. It's indescribable. So stick with Jesus. Stick with Jesus.